oftentimes at large concerts, it's common to have a warm-up band before the main act. And the, the warm-up band, at least in style in some way, is normally related to the, the main show that's going to follow. You know, Metallica is not going to hire a brass quartet to get the audience going. It's just, it wouldn't make any sense. But then there's the question of why, uh, why on earth God chose John the Baptist to be the warm-up act for the Son of God incarnate. You know, you've got this wild man in the desert. He's wearing like this homemade camel thing. You know, he's eating locusts and wild honey. Um, like, what's wrong with this dude? I, you, know, I, you know, and then he's yelling at people who are coming to him. And why is this, why is this the, the warm-up act for the Prince of Peace, for gentle Jesus? It seems very kind of incongruous, odd. And I think, though, if we, if we think about it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's easy to, in one sense, receive the comfort that Jesus offers, the, the, the things he promises. You know, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Um, you know, come to me, all you who labor in a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. A lot of beautiful stuff, beautiful uh, promises that Jesus makes. And I think the reason for John the Baptist, though, is that it's very easy to take those promises and, and those nice words and to receive them as sort of we wish to receive them, to receive them on our own terms and not the terms on which God means them. Because Jesus offers tremendous love, total love. But love is demanding. And, and one of the things that in order to give ourselves fully to him, there has to be this getting rid of the old. You know, Jesus talks about that. Nobody puts old, new wine into old wineskins. You know, that's not the way it works. And so there's John the Baptist is there in many sense to sort of, you know, clean out the closets. If you're about to go on a shopping spree, you're going to need room for your new wardrobe. And so he's there to help get things out, specifically sin. And that's what he's all about. He's about this baptism for repentance. But he knows he's not the main act. He's promising something greater. You know, I am baptizing you with water for repentance. But the one who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Something much better is coming. But we need to be ready. I think this relates liturgically. That's why the church has Advent before Christmas, this time of waiting, expectation. It used to be a sort of a, a mini penitential season, a mini Lent, um, to prepare for the birth of Jesus. And then, of course, Lent to prepare for resurrection. So there's this a liturgical application to this, uh, this too. But I think it also applies to the way that we approach each individual Mass into receiving Holy Communion. Because, yes, we, we celebrate Advent season, Christmas season, you know, the coming of, of Jesus Christ. And we remember his arrival in, in Bethlehem, him being seen by the world. But, but we actually receive Jesus 
at Mass, at every Mass. It's not just at Christmas Mass. He's there at every Mass. And so the body that's born at Bethlehem and dies on the cross and is laid in the tomb and rises from the dead is the same body that appears on the altar under, hidden under the appearances of bread and wine. Same Jesus. So how do we... How do we prepare for that? Well, part of it, you know, beginning of Mass, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. You know, let's think about our sins. Standard, like, it's just the general assumption in the church that every Mass, this is important, this is necessary. Sometimes we skip the Gloria. Advent and Lent, we skip the Gloria. We never skip Lord have mercy. Always, always there in the Mass, because we need it. And so that, there's that. Um, There's something... Uh, sort of deeper that I want to talk about as well um, in terms of the practice of receiving Holy Communion. You know, the church, uh, church teaching has been since the beginning that you know, in order to receive Jesus worthily in Holy Communion, we have to be free from mortal sins because mortal sins, they, they kill charity. And, and so they have to be revived, our soul has to be revived by confession. And I think this is really important in, in you know, past ages, people were more conscious of this, perhaps sometimes too conscious of this. I think that's part of what Vatican II meant to do is to, to tell people, you know, you don't have to go to confession every time before every time you receive Holy Communion. It's only if you have big sins to confess. But there was this general consciousness that I have to be ready. I have to be ready and prepared and freed from grave sins so that I can receive Jesus. And there are ways that that mentality can go bad, but the right mentality, the right way to think about that is as the sacraments as part of a relationship. So this is one of the differences between magic and the sacramental life of the church. The sacraments always do their own thing. You know, you, you get a validly ordained minister and you get the right stuff, you get your bread and wine and you say the right words and Jesus shows up. Okay, so, you know, the magic happens in a sense. However, for us to get something out of Holy Communion, we have to be ready for it. And if we're not prepared to receive something from Holy Communion, from confession, from baptism, holy orders, whatever, the, the heart that we bring to those sacraments affects how much we get out of it. So it's the same sacrament for everybody. But how much we get out of it is determined in large measure by what we bring to it, how much of our hearts. And so in any human relationship, you know, you think of a close friend or a significant other, and when you have a big fight, you know, the first move is not, hey, and you're in the wrong. You know, you can't just say, hey, let's go to a movie or let's go out on a, let's have a date night. It's not, it's not the way this works, you know. You need to talk to the other person, otherwise you're probably going to get a chilly sort of reception. Same thing, that the sacramental life of the church is meant to be the way, in, an, in outward signs, the way that Jesus speaks to our hearts and that we can interact with him. So if we're conscious of, of grave sin, it's important to, to seek out confession first. Where does this come from? Well, biblically speaking, it comes from uh, 1 Corinthians 11. So St. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also handed unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night before he was handed over, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Okay, now here's the key part. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. A person should examine himself, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's not something that you may have heard before. I think it's important to bring up because I know when I was growing up, 12 years of Catholic schooling, never heard this. And when I heard it, I was not pleased. Not, not that I was displeased with the rule itself. It made sense. I was displeased that I had never been told. And, and it actually made me kind of angry. You know, and I, I look back on my, on my life and... I mean, in one sense, I regret all my sins, you know. Um, in another sense, they're all okay because it's by forgiving them that Jesus has brought me to himself. So, you know, he makes it all, all good in his own way. But if there was one sin that I, I could take back, it would be to re- receiving communion unworthily, you know. And that would be the one thing i take back. Um, and so I, I think it's important to kind of share this teaching with you and, and how the sacraments relate to our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is also something that, you know, we, we get this figure of John the Baptist here. It's, you know, why part of why he exists is to help awaken the conscience of others, consciousness and the conscience of, of others. You know, that this is something we can help people with. Again, I'm sort of counting on people to give me a good sort of Catholic understanding of things. Um, and nobody really did until I met Thomas Aquinas, uh, and he had to do the hard work that other people should have done. And he was, he'd been dead for 750 years and still working. It's amazing. Um, but there's a way that I think also, too, helping other people who may not be aware of this. You know, I remember being conscious of this in, in college. There was this um, girl that I was going to mass with, a daily mass with regularly, and we ended up going on a date uh, at some point. But anyway, she was a friend. I really liked her. But then like, she said something like one day on the way to Mass. I think, I, I can't remember what it was, but I think she like, skipped a whole bunch of Masses on Sunday for no good reason. And I, I kind of like, I felt this prick of conscience. Like, oh, gosh, I should say something to her. And I was like, oh, I really don't want to. And so I remember walking back with her. We'll call her Susie. It's like, Susie, yeah, there's, there's something I got I to gotta talk to you about. And she's like, uh-oh, what is it? I was like, well... You may not like it. She's like, oh gosh, is this really personal? I was like, yeah, kind of. She's like, oh no, what is it? Go ahead. I was like, you know, you, you missed all those masses and that's kind of, you shouldn't have done that and you should probably go to confession before you receive communion again. And she's like, oh, that's it? I was like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> she's like, great, thank you. <laughs> um, oddly enough, she kept going to mass with me like every day for a couple months and didn't go back to confession, but she still went to mass every day. It was before, until she went over like break or something. It was so weird. Um, but I felt that was one of those sort of mini John the Baptist moments. I had to, I had to sort of, I, I felt compelled to say something. And, and she took it very well, you know. Um, and sometimes there are actually big historical examples where you get these sort of bigger John the Baptist moments where 
you know, in the church's discipline, even a private sort of word on the side doesn't suffice. There has to be bigger things. The, the first time I ever heard of the church denying communion to somebody was at the Art Institute of Chicago uh, because they have this massive painting. It's like eight feet wide and five feet tall or something. It's big. And it's a picture of St. Ambrose of Milan, whose feast day was yesterday, denying entrance to the cathedral to the Emperor Theodosius. Theodosius had just put down a rebellion in Greece and in celebration of his victory had slaughtered uh, 6,000 Greek men, women, and children. And uh, Ambrose uh, basically said to the emperor, yeah, that, that's not okay, and you can't do that, and you need to do public, penitent, uh, public penitence before you're going to come back in my cathedral and receive communion again, you know? Um, and it doesn't happen often. It does happen occasionally, sometimes more quietly than we think. There was... Um, when, when Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York City, uh, she's now currently lawyer for Donald Trump, but back then Republican mayor of New York City. Um, he was strongly pro-abortion and also having a very public affair and cheating on his wife and got thrown out of the mayor's mansion. And Cardinal Egan quietly informed him that he was no longer to present himself to Holy Communion, which was, worked fine for eight years until Pope Benedict came to town and Rudy presented himself for Holy Communion at Mass and got it. Um, and then Cardinal Egan had to issue a public letter saying, um, you're working on your third wife and you still haven't repented of your past sins, so don't do that again. Yeah. And there's this, so there is this sort of public, you know, and these sort of grave public, public cases of public sin, you know, where the church... Uh, steps in. And even beyond that, the penalty of excommunication. You know, people always think it's, it's meant to, you know, sort of get rid of people and throw them out of the church. It's not. It's meant to wake people up so that they come back. Excommunication is always there to prompt people to repentance, which is why no matter what you've done and no matter how many times you've been excommunicated on your deathbed, any priest, even a priest who's been kicked out of the priesthood, has the power to forgive your sins and welcome you back into the church. Because nothing is more important than the salvation of souls and bringing people back to Jesus. And that's, you know, the greatness of God's love and mercy, you know, and that ultimately, when he asks us to leave aside our sins, all these false images of who God is, false images of who we are and what is right and what is wrong, he does that so that he can replace it with the true image of what love looks like. And in this life, in this life, the best picture we have of that is God Almighty hiding under the appearance of bread and wine there for each and every one of us.